Morning, Christ Church. We are preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're continuing that today in chapter 7. Um, but before we get into it, I want to introduce our preacher today. It's Bishop Brian Wallace. And for many of you, he does not need an introduction because Bishop Brian and his wife Lisa have been worshiping here for many years. Uh, but this will be the first Sunday since he was consecrated as a bishop um, to give some kind of leadership from up front. He was just consecrated a couple months ago. Uh, but I want to go back and just say a word, a little bit of a word of introduction. Some of you don't know Bishop Brian and Lisa. You might be newer here. I first uh, became friends with Bishop Brian when I was 23 and he was 31. And that was 30 years ago. And over those 30 years, um, Bishop Brian and I and a handful of other guys, three other guys, have just kept friendship going. This all started because we were on InterVarsity staff, and Brian had come to Texas to kind of rebuild the work here, and um, there were several of us who came on staff around that time at the University of Texas to do campus ministry and to get that chapter going again with him and to kind of jumpstart it. And so that's how we all met. Over the years, we've kept friendship going, and we get together frequently and from around different parts of the country just to care for each other, love each other, have some fun, share our lives together. Um, but 30 years ago, out of those five, these five men, none of us were Anglican. Now, all of us are Anglican, four became priests, and then one of those four became a bishop. And so um, we share many kinds of common ground now. I also want to just say that over these decades now of knowing Bishop Brian, um, how delighted and thankful I am that he uh, received, heard, and answered a call to serve as our bishop, because I can say, as someone who's known and walked with him for decades, what a godly man he is. He truly loves Jesus and loves the church and cares for people well. So let's um, welcome Bishop Brian. Thank you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for Bishop Brian and um, the ways that you have gifted him and called him and the ways that he and Lisa have both served and ministered already here for years at Christ Church, but now in a new capacity, not only here, but uh, among the dozens of, of parishes in our diocese. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the ways that this, even this morning we will hear from you and your word through his voice and heart. Speak to our hearts, we ask Jesus. Direct us, direct our sights, our affections toward you. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, my brother. It's really good to be here in my home church. Uh, this place has shaped me and formed me, and the community here has prayed for me and helped me become the person God's intended me to be. And it's interesting to be here, on, which marks my 11th week of being a bishop in the Anglican Church in C4SO. And I have to get, tell you, I'm getting used to all of the new responsibilities, all the new job, and I'm getting used to wearing all these new clothes, which have lots of really funny names to them. And, um, and for me, I'm getting used to also even having new names. There's lots of new things. I'm no longer the Reverend Dr. Brian Wallace. I'm the right Reverend Dr. Brian Wallace. And everywhere I go in the diocese, people call me a new thing that I've never been called before. They call me Bishop Brian or Brian or, or just Bishop. I've just lost Brian altogether. I'm just Bishop. 
And by the way, I am still Brian. If you want to call me Brian, I will receive that with great joy, especially here at my home place. But obviously, with all the newness, with all the new clothes, the new names, the new responsibilities, all of it has somewhat triggered some new questions of, of identity for me. And by the way, it's not just me. It's all the people in my life. It's most profoundly the churches that I get to serve. But I can say without question, my children, it hasn't really changed my identity with them. My middle son sent a, a, a text to the family text thread that said, is anybody worried about dad becoming a bishop and only being able to move diagonally from now on? <laughs> Some of you didn't get that. Ask your friends what that means. And they, they are able to put me in my place. They call this, um, these vestments for me my pirate Santa costume because it has puffy sleeves and a lot of red. And I'm told I'm not allowed to wear red in my family because of my white hair, and it does make me look like Santa. But for them, I'm just dad or husband. And in this place, I bear a new responsibility in the diocese as a bishop. And I'm also a friend. I'm also a brother. But... This new identity is needing to be enwrapped into the most important thing in my entire life, which isn't my job, it's my relationship with God, it's my faith. My new calling has given me new religious ministry and ecclesiastical authority that has shifted my experience of the church in general. Now this was true when I became a deacon and again when I became a priest, these shifts in my religious vocation came with them a need to integrate my calling and to play the person in my life most, with whom I most care about, my everyday relationship to Jesus. And I have to say, it's been a profoundly helpful thing that we've been reading through the book of Matthew in my first 11 month, weeks of doing this, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, because this has given me an integrative journey of my being and my vocation. Now, the Sermon on the Mount was probably the very first scriptures that I read and devoured when I became a Christian. I was 16 years old, and my father had just passed away, and his passing gave me an understanding of new life and grace. I knew I needed a father, so I started following Jesus, and someone said I should read the book of Matthew, so I did. But I got stuck in Matthews 5, 6, and 7. I read them again and again, and to totally be honest, at that point in my life, I didn't get it at all. I didn't really understand. I was intrigued, I was moved, and honestly, a little bit afraid. Ultimately, I became a little bit legalistic. Can anybody relate to that? I will explain what I mean, but let me first say that I want to place today's reading from chapter 7 that we just heard from Deacon Eric in the context of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verse 7 is, I think, a hinge in the teaching of the sermon. We move from general instruction in Christian life and living into summary statements about how to make that life actually doable, actually livable in a life like yours and a life like mine. I kind of think it helps to think that today's passage, by considering it, that everything up to set up to this point was Jesus wanting us to let it land for us emotionally. I can see him pausing at this point in the sermon, inviting us to think about it, to feel it in our bones, to let it sink in deeply. And then I think Jesus would want us to listen to that passage and his response to us in our emotional capacities. 
What is, that's what I want us to do together this morning. So let me take you on a brief overview, I hope it's brief, of the whole sermon so we can understand what Jesus is saying to us in chapter 7. Now, Jesus begins his sermon in chapter 5 by turning all of Jewish understanding of the world on its head. He says, remember, that the poor now are blessed, favored by God. The meek will inherit the earth. There's a place for Je- with Jesus for those who mourn, the poor in spirit and the pure in heart. This is new, radical teaching to a Jewish mindset and understanding of the Old Testament. But then Jesus says something very important. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. And he goes on to say this. Look at the slide. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, we be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now for me as a 16-year-old, that last sentence was the kicker. It got my attention. See, righteousness that is better than the best. To oversimplify, you might consider that the scribes and the Pharisees were the deacons, priests, and bishops of their day. They had religious vocations. Religion was not just important to them, it was their job. And then Jesus outlines how righteousness manifests in the categories of life we all have to deal with. They are the everyday issues every one of us in the room encounters. We all struggle with them. He talks about anger and resentment. Who doesn't have any anger and resentment they've ever experienced in their life? He talks about lust or those unwanted sexual desires that some of us really wrestle with. He talks about relationships and uses the idea of divorce to highlight your and my tendency to use people or take other people for granted. He talks about promises and our, and our tendencies to make ourselves look better by changing the truth just a little bit. To not let our yes be yes or our no be no, but to kind of do whatever we think people want us to do so we fit in and feel better about ourselves. He talks about retaliation in the face of injustices. He talks about dealing with enemies or the people that feel like enemies in our lives. Can you relate to any of those? Do you know that some of them are part of your daily existence? These are the realities or challenges we all struggle with. And in each case, Jesus ratchets up the standards. He says, you've heard it said not to murder. I say harboring anger in your heart makes you liable for murder. And you've heard it not said not to commit adultery. But I say if you've looked at a woman lustfully in your heart, you have committed adultery. So while making a way for the poor, the meek and the mourner, Jesus isn't relaxing the standard of righteousness. If anything, he seems to be upping the ante at every case. Now look at this, how Jesus bookends the chapter 5. Look at the slide. He begins, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he talks about all the categories of righteousness we described. And then he ends it this way. You, therefore, must be perfect. It's not, you must, therefore, be better than your neighbor. Or slightly better than the person in the shopping line who you might describe as a Karen. He's not saying you must be better than your spouse or your kids. 
You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that's sobering teaching to anyone, especially anyone who actually cares, anyone who wants to have their lives reflect the invitations and the teachings of Jesus. Because if we're honest, we know we fall short. Can you amen that? This is what righteousness is, Jesus says. It's how you live and act and think. It's the stuff of your heart. That's who you really are. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's how he closes chapter 5. And naturally, having taught in the substantive areas of our lives in which righteousness demonstrates itself, he moves to the issue of our religious lives in chapter 6. It's almost like he's saying, hey, I know I just made you a little uncomfortable about your life. Perhaps you need to think about your spiritual practices and get yourself together. Let me tell you a little bit about that too. And then he unpacks all of these really important parts of our relationship to Jesus. He talks about three spiritual practices, generosity, prayer, and fasting. What it is and what it isn't. He calls it false if we do anything to just get notice or status. That described me at 16. I wanted to be seen as doing the right things. But Jesus says it's, our righteousness is best between us and God. Our practices are just between us and God. In the secret places, he says. And then Jesus discusses three of the most difficult areas of our lives we need to submit to God. He talks about a relationship to money. Warning us not to make our stuff more important than our relationships to God. Because he knows how hard it is to own money without money owning us. And then there's the invitation to peace and the ceasing of anxiety about what we're going to eat and wear and sleep and whether we're going to fit in. Jesus invites us not to worry. And finally, there's this call to avoid judgment of other people. Pointing out the hypocrisy of naming the faults of others while ignoring our own blatant problems and sins. He, he, he describes pointing out the speck in your brother's eye while walking around with a giant plank in your own eye. In my view, this is some of the most challenging teaching of Jesus to live consistently. These are hard teachings. And this is where we pause. This is where we get to the meat of today's passage. And I can imagine Jesus teaching through this and the, the heaviness in the room getting deeper and deeper and everyone getting a little uncomfortable. And then Jesus is quiet. Imagine what it would be like to stop here and feel the weight of all that Jesus is saying. What do you think people were thinking? What do you think people were praying? God, I think I'm in trouble. You know I can't stop being angry. God, you know what I looked at last night or the thoughts that went through my head. You know I'm out of control over food or drink. You know I can't stop. Maybe some desperate prayers like, God, forgive me. God, help me. God, rescue me. Let's put that last slide back up. Take a moment to look at this list. What lands for you this week? What's your prayer about all that Jesus has said so far?
Friends, Jesus knows. He sees everything. There's nothing that's a surprise to him. And if you are humble in heart and are feeling this moment the weight of your struggles, the pain of your sin, or the heartbreak of a broken relationship, Jesus has something to say to you. Listen. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For whoever, everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Do you need forgiveness today? Ask, Jesus says, and you will receive it. Do you need a place of belonging in the family of God? Knock and the door will be opened to you. Do you need peace in your life? Freedom from resentment, self-centeredness, unwanted sexual thoughts and behaviors, perhaps greed or judgmentalism. Seek, Jesus says, and you will find it with me. Friends, this is the promise of the gospel that we get to have, the gift of God we hope for in this Advent season. Jesus came to set us free from ourselves. And we can be free from our anger, free from our pride, free of our lust, free of the consequences of our sin. We get to have new life as a free gift from God. Not by the work of Christ, not by the work of our own hands. It's, It's a grace given to a broken world, a broken person, a broken heart. And in the Sermon on the Mount, it's like Jesus is holding up the way for all of us to hear and letting us know what he, that he wants us to seek him for help. Ask me, seek me, knock on my door. I think that was the idea that I didn't get when I was 16 years old. I could not conceive of a personal God who have compassion on me, who would want to help me, walk with me, and delight to watch me grow little by little by little. I had no understanding, ultimately, of the Holy Spirit. Now, why am I bringing up the question of the Holy Spirit? Now, Jesus says this in verse 9 of chapter 7. Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now the interesting thing, there's a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11. The context is a little bit different, but Jesus says something almost identical. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In the Gospel of John, on the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, Jesus tells his friends that he needs to go away so that he can leave them something better. What's better than Jesus right next to you? What's better than Jesus eating a meal with you, walking with you, teaching teaching you, putting his arm around you? What is better than that? It's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, not just with us, but in us. Teaching us, reminding us, convicting us, helping us, transforming us, strengthening us, renewing us day by day. Never not present to all of us at the same time. In a mysterious miracle of the Spirit. Sanctifying us. Making us a little more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. 
with a promise that you can be a little more like him tomorrow than you are today. I wish I had space in the sermon to unpack the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't, but I can say this. The gift of the Holy Spirit to you is that you don't have to stay stuck in your assailing sins. You struggle with anger. He can help you stop being angry. But not only that, he can make you the kind of person who wouldn't get angry. He can help you stop looking at things you shouldn't on the internet. But even better, he can make you the kind of person who wouldn't look at that stuff on the internet. Because by his inhabiting your life and slowly sanctifying and transforming you over the time, he can make you more like Jesus a little bit every single day. That's his invitation to you. That's his promise for you. And it's not his invitation, so, hey, get yourself together so you can be part of my community or my family. No, you're already there. Just keep walking. Keep walking with the Spirit, by the Spirit, in the Spirit. I will make you who you're supposed to be. Now, there's an even more important piece of this little passage that I want to point out. Another thing I missed when I was 16 years old. Jesus was making a promise here in chapter 7 that was rooted not in our goodness, not in our transformation, not in our goodness or righteousness, but his own goodness and his own perfection. He was inviting us to relate to him in a way that was radically different than the Jewish mind could understand. He was rooting his promise in God's own role as father in our life. Look at this next slide. He does all of our teaching about spiritual life in the context of fatherhood of God. Hey, give in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Your father sees in secret. He will reward you about prayer. Pray to him who is your father. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's a good and perfect father who will be in your life. Jesus is inviting you not to a new way of just righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit, but a new relationship with God where you are a true son of God, a true daughter of God, and your place in his kingdom is up to his capacity to be father, not your capacity to be son. His capacity to be perfect father, not your ability to be perfect daughter. It's rooted in his own character of goodness. The perfect father for you. He's he's saying, you will never not be my son. You will never not be my daughter. And as long as you ask me, as long as you seek me, as long as you knock on my door, I will open it and welcome you in. Not as a guest, not as a servant, but as a child who belongs has a place at the table and a bed with clean sheets just for you. For some of us, this is one of the hardest parts of Jesus' teaching to believe in this whole sermon. We get the demand to be pure, his command to be generous, his injunction against judgment. We've had parents or pastors or friends who have reminded us all along the way, if you live inside the lines, you will get to belong. Some of you heard that before? You'll get to be accepted if you do what you're told. You'll get to be on the inside if you get it right. There are so many subtle ways our friends and family sometimes push us a little bit more each day towards self-righteousness or works righteousness. 
We live with some fear of what will happen to us if we fail. Will I get kicked out? Will I be accepted? Will I be canceled? Now please, I do not say any of this to make you angry at your parents or your friends or an old pastor. I think they actually loved you and were doing the best they could. And sometimes, even as in our own way of being, we hurt others with the way we have been hurt. Perhaps that is some of what you've experienced in your life. But ultimately, we are all doing it just to ourselves. Maybe like me at 16, you've had Jesus' words running in the back of your head on a constant loop. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. You must be perfect. You must be perfect. It's a terrible burden to carry around with ourselves. It's a terrible burden to accuse ourselves with. When in Christ Jesus, there is no accusation. When in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. When in Christ Jesus, there's only love and forgiveness and hope and the invitation to be a true son and a true daughter of God. Diving back into the sermon has been a deep reminder to me that no matter how I progress in responsibility in God's church, in Christian career, in this new religious vocation I have said yes to, I am, we are, always called to the basics. And not just the basics of prayer and fasting and letting go of anger and leaning into purity of mind and body, though all of those are good for, you, for us. We should do with all of our energy all that Jesus teaches. But the basic Je- basics Jesus is inviting us to is to lean into the reality that we do not have to do this alone. We have been given the Holy Spirit who is with us and in us, leading us, guiding us, instructing us, and helping us. We do not have to do this alone. And as I have taken on this new identity as a bishop, my most important task, the most basic truth I need to lean into, is my identity as a son of God. I'm not primarily bishop or priest or former deacon or husband or father or friend. I am most profoundly in the world a son of God. Dearly loved. And there's nothing I can do to get myself kicked out as long as I turn myself to him. Keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking. By faith, I have been adopted into the family of God and made an heir of the kingdom. That is now and always will be the most important reality of my identity and yours. And this is true no matter where we go. You are daughters and sons of the living God if you have put your faith in him. And you remain his children, not by getting it right, not by never getting anger or lusting or being self-centered, but by asking. Asking your father for help. By seeking him at all times, even when you're at your worst. By knocking on his door when you're scared or lonely or need some help or feel accused of being kicked out of the family of faith. Ask. Seek. Knock. That is God's invitation to you this morning. 
And as we celebrate the Eucharist as a reminder of God's great mercy to us, let's also, some of you may want to go and get prayed for. Perhaps a, a, a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit to empower you to live the life you want to live. To help you be transformed and renewed day by day. Go and ask for prayer. Seek humbly the opportunity to be refreshed and renewed. Maybe you need to invite someone to pray for you that you could believe this beautiful, powerful truth that you can be a child of God. It's hard to believe that all the time. Invite people to pray for you that you could believe today and tomorrow. Father in heaven, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the truth that your love is bigger than us and our faults, our choices. Thank you that you are a perfect father to us. We receive that gift in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.